Amen. Turn with me now to the sermon scripture. You'll find it this evening, uh, once again, in Paul's uh, first epistle to Timothy. We come tonight to 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, reading verses 6 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Dear saints of God, hear now the holy, inerrant word of the Lord. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearing. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Father, again, uh, we, we bow before you, acknowledging your glory, your holiness, your perfection and our own sins. We thank you for the perfect, finished work of Christ on our behalf on the cross, and that by your grace and by your grace alone, uh, we come before you and are accepted in your beloved Son. We thank you that one day uh, we shall be in heaven, one day we shall be for eternity in a world without end, in your presence, in the presence of our Savior Jesus and of all the saints who have lived and died in faith. And we thank you that one day we will be made perfect in glory and saved to sin no more. And as we wait for that great day, the longing of our hearts, keep us, O Lord, by your grace and by your strength and by your spirit, faithful and true. Bless your word now as it goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been in a rather sobering part of Paul's letter to Timothy. As Paul has been warning uh, Timothy about a great apostasy, Uh, That is to come in latter times, uh, a great falling away from the Christian faith that we saw last time that will occur, as the Holy Spirit expressly says, that men will follow deceiving spirits or doctrines of demons, specifically that men will be forbidden to marry and to eat certain foods, though God has not forbidden marriage, nor has he forbidden foods. 
but he has given us liberty to marry and to eat with thanksgiving the good things that he has created as they are sanctified with the word of God and with prayer. It's all part of the message of the letter as a whole, you know, in which Paul is instructing younger Timothy and the things he needs to know and to understand in order to be a good pastor and a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. You'll notice this theme continues here in verse 6 of chapter 4, as Paul says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Notice then that though the letter is addressed specifically to Timothy, We've said this before, it clearly has relevance for the whole church, therefore for you and therefore for me. That as Timothy is instructed to teach the brethren or instruct the brethren in these things, the whole church, the brothers and the sisters, are to be taught by Timothy the things that Paul is entrusting to him. This is the church's program of discipleship, if you will. This is the program or pattern of discipleship as modeled by Paul. Paul teaches Timothy. Timothy teaches the brethren. In time, those brethren will teach others. This is how the church advances from generation to generation. And in this time, in this church, this pastor and these elders, they will give way to another generation of teachers and of preachers. They must. And there must be those who arise, even from this congregation and even from this generation, who will take up the mantle for the rest of the 21st century or until the Lord comes. But faithful teachers must arise. Notice, too, how Paul defines a good minister. A good minister, he says, is one who instructs the brethren Literally, the word means to lay down or to put under or to put in mind, who instructs the brethren in these things. Lay down these things before the brethren, put them in mind. It really is a wonderful description of what a good minister is. He instructs the brethren just as he himself is nourished in words of faith and of sound doctrine. Now, this is not all that can be said, of course, about a good minister, but it is an indispensable thing. He is a sincere believer. He himself is nourished in the gospel, and he's about the business of teaching the word of God to others. I have a book on my shelf called, Of All Things, The Unnecessary Pastor by Eugene Peterson. It's one of the best books on pastoral ministry that I have ever read. And it is called The Unnecessary Pastor. Now, Peterson is not arguing there that the pastoral ministry is unnecessary. In fact, he is saying very much that the pastoral ministry is necessary for the church and indeed for the world, ultimately. But what he is saying is that the way in which the pastoral ministry has been redefined or recast or re-envisioned in the modern world that the pastor is the guy who shows up uh, when there's a crisis in the community, 
The pastor is the guy who has pithy moral lessons to share whenever there is an occasion in the city that calls for it. That he's the one who shows up, for example, when there's a military retirement and has nice things to say. He's the one who comes to pray at council meetings or legislative sessions when we need to be reminded of our patriotism or of our civic religion. Peter says, no, the pastor is completely unnecessary for these kinds of things. The Bible never envisions pastors doing such things, and we don't need pastors to do such things. What we do need pastors to do is to stand before God's people and declare to them again and again their own unworthiness and God's great worthiness and the marvelous fact of the gospel that Jesus Christ is a friend to sinners, that he is mighty to save those who call upon him, and that he lovingly accepts those who repent of their sins and trust in his saving power. For that, Peterson says, we do need pastors, and that is the reason God has given them to us, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, to bear witness of the gospel, to be ministers of word and of sacrament. Let other recognized members of the community do those things that they can do, but let pastors do the things that only pastors can do. Therefore, we run the risk of pastors doing so many things they were never called to do that they will fail to do effectively the main thing they were called to do, instruct, nourish in faith, proclaim the gospel, invite sinners to salvation. And notice that in verse 7, there is also something which good ministers are to avoid or to reject. Profane and old wives' fables. I suppose this is where we get the saying in our language, old wives' tales. Profane has been used already in this letter. It can mean immoral or ungodly. The word for old wives appears here and only here in the New Testament. Literally, it means pertaining to old women. Other translations uh, who find that perhaps a little bit politically incorrect uh, translate it instead irreverent, leaving out the gender or the ageism of it all. The word for fables is mythos, myths. Legends, tales. People love to talk. Old women especially, I suppose. Sorry, ladies. Love to tell tall tales and spin yarns. And in many cases, to talk about things that are not true. To gossip. To spread rumors. To speak of things that are not sound and not solid. I know that none of us would like to think that it is true in our church, but the fact is it is true in every church. People talk about things they do not understand. People speak of things that are unimportant as though they were. 
They gossip. They tell stories. They transmit and publish myths and fables and legends, much of it untrue, much of it unworthy of repetition, and surely not worthy of instruction. It does not correspond to the words of faith and of sound doctrine of which Paul commends to Timothy. It's nonsense. It's background noise. It's chatter. You know that word? It's used in intelligence gathering, isn't it? They're listening for something solid, something of substance, something to go on. But so much of it is meaningless chatter, not beneficial. And Paul says to Timothy, pay no attention to that stuff. Just avoid it and reject it. Just because someone is talking about it does not make it worthwhile. Does not mean that it should be repeated. Beloved, I have often thought that we could keep ourselves out of a lot of trouble in the church if we just kept our mouths shut when they ought to be kept shut. And likely Paul is talking about those fables and endless genealogies he made reference to already in chapter 1, verse 4. But the point of it all is that people have ideas and stories and tales and that it all must be rejected if it is not based upon the sure foundation of the word of God. You know, I have sincere appreciation for our Roman Catholic friends who defend the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, his bodily resurrection. There are times I have caught portions of Roman Catholic programs on TV, and I've appreciated the seriousness of their approach to the faith. And then I'll see one of those so-called, should I even use the word, Christian programs. It's like a circus, and I am embarrassed to be grouped among them as an evangelical Protestant. So I'm grateful to the Roman Catholic Church for their reverence. But beloved, so much of the package of beliefs in Roman Catholicism is not founded on the word of God. The veneration of saints, the sinlessness of Mary, the teaching on indulgences or purgatory or the papacy, the celibate priesthood, we spoke about it last time, the theology of the Mass, the saying of the Rosary. I saw a program recently, and little children, small children, eight, nine, ten years old, were saying their Hail Marys over and over and over, and the Lord's Prayer over and over and over and over. It seemed to me like meaningless, endless repetition. And I thought, of course, of the admonition of our Lord Jesus. Don't go on saying the same things over and over, thinking that we will be heard for our many words. Didn't he tell us not to do the exact thing that you're doing? These are the traditions of men, pure and simple. They're not taught in the word of God. You will search the scriptures in vain for them. 
And what you should know is this. This church stands with Paul and Timothy on the simple, unadorned word of God. I'm not saying that we get everything absolutely right, but we reject fables and myths and endless teachings if they cannot be shown to rest upon the authority of God's word. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation, maybe it was a small group Bible study, when it seemed like everything was getting off target in a tangent, a rabbit trail, as we say. And Paul is saying, now instead of wasting time with idle speculation, Christians must instead exercise themselves unto godliness. Verse 7. And then he then goes on to say that while bodily exercise profits a little, godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. Isn't that something? I wonder if you take a look at our society today, even if you look at many Christians and at many churches today, Do you think we are placing a greater emphasis on exercising the body or exercising the soul toward godliness? There is an obsession in our culture, and there has been for many years with bodily health, with physical training, with fitness, with exercise. I've been around long enough Go back years to the fitness craze, the 80s. What did we learn back then? Well, back then it was about carbo-loading. Eat as many breads and pastas and grains and cereals as you could. And hours and hours of cardio. Step aerobics, jazzercise, then cross-training and spin classes. Now CrossFit. First, there was long aerobic cardio that was best. Now they say short, intense interval training is what you ought to do. I've even heard of the seven-minute workout. Now, that one sounds good. It used to be that we were to avoid fat and red meat. Now we're to avoid carbs and sugars. Fruits and vegetables and meat are a must. Some say fat is fine. Others say dairy is bad. We used to eat low-fat and not-fat everything. Now we found out that the stuff they put in it instead of the fat is bad for you. (laughs) Now we cleanse. We blend and make green drinks. (laughs) We eat clean and whole. There was the Atkins diet. And then the South Beach diet. Now there's paleo. You have to eat like your cavemen and women ancestors. We were once told to eat all the bread we want. And then we were told only to eat whole grains. And now we're being told that gluten is, avoidance is the order of the day. It's all very confusing. And after 30 years of all of this, two-thirds of Americans are overweight and one-third are obese. And few of us exercise. 
I think, the, I think the lesson is no matter what they tell us, it doesn't work and we don't do it. But there is, of course, some benefit to physical training and health. Paul does not deny this. It's a remarkable verse in the Bible. He says it profits a little. It's good to be healthy, to be physically strong, to be fit, to be able to work and to play with your children, to live a long and productive life. Conversely, it's not good to be sickly, to lack energy, although some of this, of course, is beyond our control. I found that eating a sensible diet, reasonable portions, good food and not fast food is a wonderful thing. It leads to a generally healthy body and a sound mind and energy sufficient for the day. There's a very interesting article in a recent Time Magazine edition that suggests that regular exercise leads not only to a healthy body, but a healthy mind. It's good for overall health, including mental health, and helps with depression and anxiety. But Paul says, for all of our obsession with outward appearance and inward health, that relatively speaking, this profits a little. All of that study, all of that effort, for something that in the end, if we do it, profits a little bit. But godliness, exercising unto godliness, now that is profitable for all things. And not only for this life, the life that now is, but is profitable for the soul unto eternity. Beloved, is it good news? You don't have to be a supermodel or a 10 to be a Christian. And it just may be that in the case of, as it is in the case of money, obsessing with outward appearance and with physical training may be a burden or a hindrance in the way of Christ. Now, what is godliness? Godliness means reverence for God. It indicates the respect that the believer owes to God. It is fear of God in the holy sense and love for God mingled together that constitute the piety of man toward God. It comes from the conviction and the awareness that all of life is lived before the face of God. God is holy. He sees and knows all. And we are called to be holy in his sight. John Calvin called godliness, quote, the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. The godly person places God at the center of every activity and asks, is this pleasing to my Father in heaven? 
Does this make God happy? Does this bless his name? Does it give God glory? God is in the sleeping and the waking, in the eating and the drinking, in the coming and the going. God is in the music listening, in the TV watching, in the internet surfing, in the alone time, in each relationship, in our times with the opposite sex. God is in our private thoughts, our public actions, our conversations, our words, our deeds. The godly person walks with God at home, at work, at church, at school, and at play. He is not one thing at church and another thing at home and another thing at school. He is a conscious Christian everywhere he goes, at every hour of the day, no matter whom he is with. It's the attitude toward life that David expressed when he said in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Isn't that a remarkable and beautiful thing? What an expression. We know that God is always with us. We're good theologians. He's omnipresent. He's with us by virtue of his covenant promise. But David is saying, more than as a deliverance of my theology, as a deliberate act of my mind and my heart and my will, I have set the Lord, put the Lord, I have placed the Lord always in my presence so that I'm conscious of him and aware of him, that I might live in such a way that pleases him. Oh, that we Christians would follow David and set the Lord always before us. Above all else, God wants his people and his ministers to be godly. That's why Paul did not give Timothy steps to boost church attendance. You'll never find that in the Bible. Instructions on how to improve the music and make it more acceptable to the public. You'll never find that either. He didn't give him instructions on how to be a better administrator. Nor did he thoroughly critique his preaching style. Imagine having to preach in the presence of the Apostle Paul. No, instead, he gave him the most practical instruction of all. A good minister is a godly minister. A good minister is a godly minister. Oh, we have complicated it, beloved. The churches could dramatically simplify their search committee's work. We're looking for a good minister. And by that we mean a godly minister who instructs the brethren in sound doctrine. You know of any? The Puritans used to say that a good minister is both godly and learned but because we tend to respect more a preacher's life than his learning. He must be godly, and rightly so. Let me tell you two stories. One very sad one, one very good one. Heather and I were members 
shortly after we were married of a church in California where I did my internship during seminary. I don't remember the pastor having us in his home. I don't remember having him in our home. But it came about that while we were there, we went to the pastor's house to help him and his family move. Now, I don't want this to sound shallow. It will. But we were overwhelmed by the filth in the home and how chaotic it was, how out of control the children were, and how disorganized the entire enterprise was. Something didn't seem right in the home. We didn't know exactly what. Years later, we had moved away. We found out that the pastor had cheated on his wife, gotten a divorce, was now out of the pastoral ministry, though he continued as a professor of theology and was a chaplain at the local Christian university. The man was a reasonably gifted teacher, but when it came to personal conduct and pastoral care, there was a major breakdown. And I now believe many others saw it as well. We went through two of our most trying times when we were members of that church. His pastoral care to us was nearly non-existent, and I think I now know why. Fast forward a couple of years. Our pastor in Michigan may not have been the most approachable man who ever lived, but he was the most faithful pastor I have ever known. He was formed through the challenges of life, and they were real, of ministry, of family difficulty. And Christ produced in him a man of deep, godly character. I once went to him when I was struggling with a personal issue of deepest gravity. He met with me for 10 minutes, maybe. He gave me a very brief but very challenging answer. I did not like it much at the time. It was the most important advice I've ever been given. He prayed with us when we were childless. I've told you that many times. He gathered the session to do the same. He was in the hospital when Heather gave birth. He was in our home to make sure everything was okay with us. On the one or two occasions when I preached there as I was uh, training for ministry, he called me on Saturday night to say that he was praying for me and thinking of me and that he understood what that nervous preacher's Sunday night or Saturday night feeling was. He said, I still get it, and I still have it on Sunday morning until I hear the call to worship. He was a simple man tall and strong and rugged. He told stories of street fights he got in as a teenager in New York. You wouldn't mess with him. Talk about bodily training. He was an imposing man, but he was simple. He loved his wife and his children. He loved his daughter when she sinned and fell away and was reconciled later to the church. Uh, he brought his lunch every day, an apple 
or an onion or a tomato with salt, what was left from Sunday's potluck in the kitchen, and he ate it in the church kitchen. He never ate out. He drove an older car, could have driven a much newer one. I think his priority was to give. He baptized our children, of course. His voice broke every sermon, it seemed, when the gospel seized his heart again. I would have listened to him for hours. I never wanted his sermon especially to end. Elijah barely knew Pastor Walter, but when Noah was a year old or so, the church service was about to start. He stopped us in the hallway. He knelt down and looked Noah in the eye and asked him very pointedly, young man, are you obeying your mother? He walked away. Few words, but everyone counted. And I do remember a couple of sermons. Nehemiah 8, bring out the book. Uh, The redemptive move, he called it, from Ephesians 4. But most of all, I remember uh, a towering figure in our lives. Godly character. A man who, though quite strong physically, had quite clearly been exercising his soul and working out godliness for decades. We were there six years, so six times 50, 300 sermons. I suppose I heard from him, but I remember uh, the sermon of his life, his love for Christ and for the church and his faithfulness. Beloved, mark it well. Above all else, God wants his people and his ministers to be godly. And we will pause for now and pick it up again next time and ask, how is it that we train and exercise unto godliness? Let us pray now. Father, we thank you again now for this, uh, your word, and we thank you for its corrective in our lives that we often miss what is most important and emphasize the things that are not. Do help us, we pray, to fix our eyes on Jesus, our risen Savior, and to live all of life before the face of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name.